from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 12, Ebira, Horror of the Deep. G fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel. And I'm Nathan Marchand. And today we will be going into a new film completely in the series. It is a very different one than any one that we have done yet. It is a really archetypal movie, if you didn't know that it is. Uh... <laughs> But it's fun. I love it, and we'll have a good time discussing it. Yep. So we'll be going over Ebira, Horror of the Deep, or, as it's more commonly known in the United States, Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. Our related topic for this episode is Japan's population and societal changes and their effect on movie audiences. As with every episode, we'll begin with a short description of the film, followed by our opinion and discussion. Take it away, Nate. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is an anti-hero. He's primarily a force of nature, showing no regard for the safety of humans, hero and villain alike. He even attacks Mothra when she comes to rescue everyone. At other times, he's a character exhibiting human-like behavior such as taunting Ebira and seeming to have an affection for Dayo. Ebira is a vicious giant lobster who attacks any ship that enters his territory, often eating any unfortunate humans he finds. He occasionally acts anthropomorphically when battling Godzilla. Mothra sleeps for most of the movie while the Shobajin and her people pray for her to rescue the slaves on Devil's Island. Ryota Kane is a young country boy who steals a yacht in order to find his brother Yata, who was lost at sea. On board are his new friends Nita and Ichino, as well as Yoshimura, a suave and experienced thief on the run from the police. While at first annoyed with the boys, Yoshimura helps them with his thievery skills. Dayo is a pious and feisty young woman from Infinite Island captured as a slave by Red Bamboo. Captain Ryui is a cruel officer in Red Bamboo, supervising their island base, where they're manufacturing material for nuclear weapons. The human and kaiju plot intermix is moderately high. The monsters are constantly influencing the human story, even if they're off-screen. The characters are often trying to avoid the monsters, utilize them, or prey to them. Yoshimura, Ichino, and Dayo erect a makeshift lightning rod using a sword and some wire to awaken Godzilla as a distraction against the red bamboo. He battles Ebira, driving him away. The problem is solved when Godzilla breaks through the red bamboo power line defenses and flattens their base, forcing them to activate their nuclear facility self-destruct. Godzilla battles Ebira a second time, killing him. Mothra awakens and rescues the heroes and slaves away before the island explodes. This script is more indicative of Sekizawa's early 60s work. The story is simple and fun. The kaiju and human plots become more intertwined as the film progresses, with the monsters ultimately solving most of the conflicts. Budgets continue to decline with this entry. The setting was changed to an island in order to save money on miniatures. The Godzilla suit from Invasion of Astro Monster was reused here. 
Eiji Tsuburaya was busy with his own production company at the time, so the special effects were directed by Sadamasa Arikawa under Tsuburaya's supervision. Despite all this, the effects are solid. The Ebira suit is well-constructed, and the climactic exploding island is impressive. The movie is filmed very well. This film has a lighter tone than the previous two films. Both the human and kaiju storylines have elements of comic relief. The events of the film do have some gravity. Regardless, this is very much an escapist fantasy. This isn't a very experimental film because it's not that far off from what one would expect for a movie rooted in the second half of the 1960s. This movie is an expansion of style for the franchise because it created an entirely different flavor of Godzilla movie. It's the first Godzilla film aimed at a younger audience, in this case teens and youth, as exemplified by a cast of mostly young actors and a greater emphasis on action. This was the first Godzilla film directed by Jun Fukuda, who was known for his young guy films and crime thrillers. The script was originally written as an adaptation of Rankin Bass's King Kong cartoon series, but it was rejected. Not wanting it to go to waste, Sekizawa replaced Kong with Godzilla, which accounts for some of Godzilla's odd behavior. When released December 17, 1966, the film had an attendance of 3,450,000 with an additional 760,000 attendees when re-released in 1972. Released on American TV in 1968, it was the first Godzilla film not shown theatrically in the U.S. It received mixed reviews from the fan base. The changes made in the dub version were minor. The original title sequence and one early scene were deleted. Neither Captain Ryui nor Ebira were referred to by name. The rock music that plays during Godzilla and Ebira's fights was removed. This film features a terrorist organization that, at least implicitly, has aspirations of world domination. They make several references to a headquarters, which means they're either a larger organization or funded by a nation. There's a brief glimpse of the hickish parts of Japan, which features a medium performing a ceremony to view the Land of the Dead. There are brief clashes between Ryota the country boy and his new city slicker friends. A key theme in this film is using one's head to outthink enemies and overcome obstacles. Another is not to ignore those in need just because one is safe. The story touches on faith since Dayo, the slaves, and the infant islanders steadfastly pray for Mothra to intervene on their behalf. Yoshimura finds redemption by using his thievery skills to help them escape and decides to go straight at the end of the film. Anti-nuclear sentiment is expressed by the heroes when they see Devil's Island destroyed. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part two of the podcast, we have an opinion and discussion of our film. Sonate, what did you think of this movie? You know, this is one that I watched a lot growing up. Now, because of all the preparation we've been doing for the podcast on this most recent viewing, I actually find myself liking it more. I like it more every time I see it, but especially since I got the Blu-ray, I like it even more because it looks absolutely fantastic. But I think as a movie, this I think this movie just gets a little bit too much heat for from from fans and from other people who watch it. I mean, this doesn't have a very good rating on anything that I've seen uh, as far as just... IMDb or other various websites is not very well rated. And I think it's because this isn't supposed to be one of those grandiose movies. That's like a rehashing of the original and it's not supposed to be anything that it's not, you know, this is a very simple film overall for who it's, who it's meant to be for and what the purpose is. 
I have a feeling, I mean, there's probably a multitude of factors for why it's not as well-liked by the fan base. It's usually not ranked as the worst, obviously, but it's not usually ranked as the best either, which I think is a fair assessment. It's much different than what has come before, and like you said, it isn't as as big and grandiose, you know, and there are reasons uh, for that, but it never ceases to be entertaining. I, I do I do wonder if part of the reputation that it has is because this is one of two Godzilla movies that made it onto Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, I've seen both of the Godzilla episodes, and they're, they're very entertaining. I don't remember them being mean to this movie. I think they they saw the sincerity in it, for sure. It was just one of those movies where it was easy to make the jokes, I think is what it really boiled down to. Well, they're going to find the movies that they think they're going to have the easiest time with. And they, they have their own estimate for how they do that. Just like they've had a lot of people that just sit around watching these horribly abysmal movies that don't even make it onto the show. But I think this one, it's a little bit not silly, but it's it's exotic. There's there's stuff actually happening in it. And there's, there's actual you know, something to make fun of. As opposed to just having one of those movies that it doesn't really lend to the joke so much, but I don't know. Getting back to the movie's purpose though, I think it was meant to be a South Seas adventure film and it was meant for younger people, quite obviously. There was a big generational change by the time this movie was coming out. Mid-60s, late-60s especially, where, where the new generation, the new post-war generation has become adults. And so we can really get into a different kind of entertainment for a different kind of generation. And I think that's what this is. They're not, they're not remaking Invasion of Astro Monster. That was just the year before this. They're not remaking the original film. They're trying to do something different. And as I've said a million times already, I don't want to see the same thing over and over again. I, seeing young people in this is really refreshing. I want to see that generational change take place. And Jun Fukuda knew how to do that. He was perfect for this. He made films on places like college campuses. And it seems like he would have been fun to work with on a movie like this. And Takarada, he's at his most Cary Grantish of any of the movies. He's, and he seems to work with the young actors very well. They seem to have a good rhythm to their acting. They seem to be comfortable. I love Takarada in this movie, by the way. To me, it seems like he could have been channeling like Cary Grant from 1955 and To Catch a Thief. There's that charm. There's that the handsomeness is definitely going on. He's really good in this. Well, and the other thing that he does is he acts as sort of as a, a mentor or a temperance uh, for you know, for these young actors and these the, these younger characters, a little bit who of are, a voice of reason. Yeah, kind of a voice of reason. You know, when they're being more impulsive or uh, they're giving up on certain things, and he's telling them, "No, think about things here a little bit more." Or, "Yes, we can take care of this." Yeah, you know, like do this instead. Yeah, that, yeah. And he's really helpful with uh, with them in the movie, and he seems to. I imagine if I was one of the younger actors, I probably would have looked to him as a mentor of some kind anyway. And so it, that that makes sense to in, in a meta kind of way, too. Getting to the more technical aspect, Jun Fukuda really knows how to make a movie. He tells the story with the camera. He moves the camera around. He's following things. He's, he's tracking the camera. He's 
doing quicker cuts. He's doing all kinds of nice technical things with this movie, and it helps to keep the movie going uh, momentum-wise. You can notice in these movies which ones are filmed better than the others, and this one particularly is better. The Blu-ray looks fantastic. It's filmed very, very well. It looks great. It's one of the best-looking Godzilla Blu-rays that I've seen that have come out so far. You can really tell that it, that it's a nice, clean print probably to begin with. It looks like it's been preserved well. And I think Fukuda really, really adds a lot to the Godzilla series with the movies that he made. Which is ironic because from what I've read, he wasn't fond of making Godzilla movies, but he was a good company man at the studio. So when he got the assignment, he made the best product that he could. Yeah, I think he said something like only the original one should have been made and they should have stopped there. But Yeah, which, yeah. like I said, is unfortunate because he left an indelible impression. Next to Ashiro Honda, he's the most prolific director to work on the franchise. And I think maybe some of his work gets underestimated maybe because these the budgets were lessened a little bit as he came on and started making more of the movies. And so he had a little bit less wiggle room as far as you know he had to probably make less of a great film than he wanted to like he probably wanted to make something better but obviously the budget probably hemmed him in hemmed him in after a while here yeah i would agree with that it 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 also doesn't help that he tends to get a bit of a bad rap because he made some of the lesser entries of the franchise i mean he did most of the 70s movies and yeah, we will get to those eventually, but... And yet yeah. even those are filmed well. Yeah. <laughs> he does a good job with what he has. And that's really, uh, well, it's kind of like MasterChef when they just get some ingredient that is really hard to work with, and yet people can make really amazing dishes out of it. And I think, I think Fukuda was pretty good at that in the movie department. Another reason that you'll notice the, the change in you know, audience demographics and all that with this is that... This was actually originally intended to be an adaptation of a cartoon series, The King Kong Show, which had been produced by Rankin Bass in association with a Japanese anime studio. They uh, they went to Toho and said that they wanted to make a movie out of this, a live-action movie, so they had Sekizawa write the script. So it, this movie originally featured Kong, and then that script was turned down. Then what Sekizawa did was... It's like if he was writing this on a computer now, he just would have done the little action where you can do, you know, find replace in a Word document and just replaced King Kong with Godzilla. Since it was originally intended to be an adaptation of a cartoon, it was intended for younger viewers. So, you know, there's that also to take into consideration with this, which also accounts for why Fukuda and these young actors were such a great fit for the movie. And we can't forget uh, Kumi Mizuno. And she she also looks she looks great in this movie. I mean, she's I that's love another her in indication this. you can tell they were going for the young audience. I mean, <laughs> she's dressed a certain way that kind of lends to that. In case you weren't wondering about which audience we're going for here. Well, and I would also say, I mean, yeah, she is great eye candy, but she also gets a chance to play a very different character than she did with Namikawa. As far as getting to be able to play different roles, we also get Akihiko Hirata, who gets to play this villain with an eye patch, of course. But <laughs> it's he, on the other I, eye, it though. It looks like he, yeah, <laughs> it looks like he's having fun with the movie, and he's he's not like I don't think he's necessarily hamming it up 
by any means necessarily. No, but, but he's definitely can, having fun. Yeah, you can tell that this is one of those movies where, yeah, they're still putting a lot of work into what they're doing. They can't obviously slack off, but they're having a good time in the role. He very much gets to be a Bond villain in this. I mean, that's really what he is. You know, And what's funny is he's the... He's the face of the villains that we see the most often, but he's not actually, you know, the highest ranked member of Red Bamboo who's there. They do have a jet. They do have a general who's played by the guy who plays every general in every Godzilla movie. <laughs> but you know, he's the, like I said, he's the one we see the most often and he does a great job. I, I, I loved every scene he was in. I, you know, I especially love that scene when, Takarada is crawling around thinking that they're sneaking around and then he comes across Harada's boot. Uh-huh. And then he kind of just looks up like, oh crap. <laughs> what did I just get myself into? And then they have this nice little stare down, and then Takarada turns around to tell the like he's telling the other guys, yeah, we got caught. And then he pulls out the smoke bomb in his coat and throws it at him so that and they can run. <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah, the guy who plays the general in this, like, they put some interesting work into this because he has his nice little, uh, very nicely appointed dictator office. Did you catch that? Like, they actually (laughs) built him an office and they show it for like, what, 10 seconds? Yeah, something like like that. Like, they barely show it at all. But I was like, oh, wow, that's a cute little, like, a. yeah, cute design kind of uh, office. I think it was just funny that that was even in there. Another thing I really like is how the story is set up. It's sort of like a, I wonder what happens next kind of setup. Various story elements get going and then they all interact with each other. And Sekizawa wrote it. So it's like, let the story unfold. And that's exactly what happens. We, we get, we get a nice story that evolves over time and it's, it's different. It's more, I would say relaxed kind of storytelling. And it's, uh, it keeps, I would say it kept the, younger audiences uh, interested well he's he's showing things that you know that a younger audience you know, they, their interest would be piqued by it you instead know? of guys in lab coats yeah yeah i mean the it, it, you know it opens with you know with the medium you know the, so there's some spiritualism there so that might have been of interest you know to a younger audience oh yeah also the comedy starts right away in this yeah movie with her they're definitely not they're being a little bit funny and exaggerated with yeah. the, the way she's reacting. Yeah, she was a little bit melodramatic, I yeah. will say. Yeah, got everybody in the mood, I think. Yeah, and then you have, you know, then you have Ryota. He's going, you know, he's the country kid going into the big city, trying to find his brother. He just knows he needs a boat. So he's trying to figure out how to get a boat. And then, of all things, he decides to try to enter a dance competition you know, it's like this endurance dance competition because you know because the prize was a boat. I wonder if that was actually a thing back then because that would have been crazy. I've heard stuff about like that with cars, but oh, I I totally believe it. Yeah, and I will say, as someone who is, who is into ballroom dancing, I almost kind of wonder if I could have pulled off something like this. I mean, there there was an announcer talking about how they had people dancing for three days. Yeah, so I thought three days. I'm mm-hmm. like, you've got to be kidding me! Three days straight, no breaks. What kind of madness is this? Yeah, it's a crazy marathon. I'd want to win something after doing that. Yeah, I was going to say. Well, and then they're extremely surprised when everything that he's trying to do actually comes true. Yeah. Like, there's a part where uh, everyone realizes that 
he was totally on the right track. And the, the other guys that are with him, they give this, they give each other this look like, Oh no bleeping way is this no way. <laughs> and, and they express that surprise. And it looks like they would, they actually, it was a believable response. Yeah. And, but I have to say one of my, one of my favorite scenes in this whole movie is when those boys, you know, because they're just humoring Ryota. Like I said, they take him onto this yacht and they're like, Oh yeah, you want this book? And then they run into Yoshimura. He's puts a he points a gun at him and says, "What are you doing here? Get off my boat!" Just he's, he's trying to scare him away, but then he decides he'll humor them a little bit. He convinces them that he's the actual owner of the boat. He says, "Hey, if you want to spend the night, you can go ahead and spend the night. It's okay." And then what happens? They all wake up and find out, "Oh, Ryota set sail while we were all sleeping." Jokes Crap. on them. Yeah, jokes on you guys. And then it turns out like his gun wasn't even real. It was a toy. I mean, it's like everyone is bluffing everybody <laughs> at this point. And it all backfires on them. Pretty much does. But this movie is a bit zany throughout. And you, you have to think about the time it was made, though. I mean, the network that put on the original Batman TV show, like they, they had test audiences preview the show and you know what happened right like they said it was horrible oh really and then they said oh we're gonna put it on anyway and (laughs) well and then it obviously became a huge thing but at the time there was a divide in audiences where you had the younger people who totally would go for that but then you had the older generation and they're like what is this this is so out there and, and like this was the this was caesar romero's time as an actor doing his routines and you all know i don't want to see him ever again but the, <laughs> the, that's the kind of comedy that was going well for him at the time and so this really this movie really isn't all that risky it's really going with the trends that were being established at the time for what new audiences wanted but it, to me, it, the, the zaniness totally mixes in with everything of that time. Uh, side note, uh, you don't suppose this has something to do, this movie, with Gilligan's Island? I had never that, thought of that. But that there's, went from 64 to 67. That I could see that happening. I know the... I remember at least part of the original Japanese title for this was Operation Robinson Crusoe, which would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Even though Robinson Crusoe is never referenced at all in this, mm-hmm. but it's probably Sekizawa being funny with his titles. Yeah, but I think there's since Gilligan's Island was such a phenomenon at this point, it really makes me wonder the whole being stranded on an island thing. Yeah, yeah, it was a thing. I really back then. wonder because a lot of these Godzilla films are related to something a lot of the time but i'm wondering if that's where i mean part of the island thing was to do what it was to lessen the the model building expense and some other expenses right yeah well this was this was the first of what a lot of the fan base calls the the island series of movies because you'll notice for the next several movies uh all the way through the 60s that an island serves as either the primary setting or at least a major setting within the movie. And it was done as a cost-cutting measure, but I think it's one of those examples of where you can see how limitations actually help 
the creativity to thrive because you know they were probably given marching orders like okay set this on an island so we don't have to build as many miniatures and then they really worked with it i think the miniatures in this movie are good i think the effects look good the colors look fantastic but I think it's one of the more impressive movies, actually, for where it's set and how well it's done. I don't know, like, if you look at the ratings for this thing, this thing just got savaged. But I, I think that there needs to be a reassessment of, of how this film actually is, because you've got to grade it more on its own standards. But get, the other thing with this is there was a lot of water-related work. Yeah, a lot of it. That's not necessarily the work input. It's harder to do work in like in the guy in the Eberra suit. Like, I don't think I would want to have to be that actor necessarily. If I had the choice, I'd probably rather be Godzilla because Eberra has to be in the water and has to do all this stuff in the water. Yeah. He it never, just, he never comes out of the water no, the whole time. He's, he's always in the water. Yeah. And so like the being in the suit and having to do all that, I mean, I imagine they did a lot of work with the, uh, in the big, pool yeah i'm sure they uh, did on the studio i mean there's a lot of work here that had to have been done there and so there's pretty intensive work there but a lot of, a lot of time like working with water is just another thing that makes the whole production harder it's not something that makes it easier it's it ends up making it more complicated yeah um, i've heard stories i don't know if the, if that's what happened in this movie but i've heard stories about some of these toho suit actors having to wear scuba gear when they're it, it, within the suits while they're you know doing these water scenes because you always run the risk that you're going to spend a lot of time underwater. Do you think this movie is more silly or do you just think it's entertaining? I would say it's more entertaining. There are points uh, that I do think it's a little bit silly, but it, it never ceases to entertain me whenever I watch it. The Especially the, 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 the sequence of scenes that we get where... Kumi Mizuno is trying to get somewhere and she, she comes across like runs pretty much straight into Godzilla. And then she, it's like this Jurassic park thing. She, she holds, she holds still uh-huh. and then he, he doesn't see her anymore, but the, it's like a, he's a T-Rex now or something, but something that but, was, but, that's there's def- this, but there's this whole sequence where like all this stuff starts fighting him like yeah. seemingly out of nowhere. And out of left field, but it's this extended action sequence. It's really well filmed. There are a lot of really quick cuts. It doesn't look particularly easy no. to, to do all of these scenes like this. All the exploding of the planes, and then the I love when the the bird, the giant, the giant condor, yeah, the giant that condor comes out of nowhere. Random bird, yeah, and then he <laughs> he takes care of it, and then it falls. It like runs into the cliff there, and then falls into the water and makes this huge splash. It was really impressive. That part. Yeah. That's actually, that's actually one of the scenes where I, I have the most distinct memories of some of the riffs that, you know, my brothers and I would throw at that when Godzilla shoots that condor with his atomic breath. I remember my, one of my younger brothers yelling, KFC, 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 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which actually then when I when I uh, when I was watching it this most recent time and I thought of that when Godzilla blasts Ebera at the end uh, or not at the end but when he blasts Ebera with his atomic breath I was thinking red lobster <laughs> that'd be the best dinner ever it would probably taste really good <laughs> baked giant lobster thanks to Godzilla 
But uh, going back to that, you know, to that scene, that is probably the scene that best exemplifies that this was originally a King Kong script because Godzilla has rarely, if ever, focused his attention on one human character like that. You know, I mean, he doesn't pick up, pick her up or anything like Kong would, but Godzilla rarely picks favorites though. Yeah. Yeah, That's definitely for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, if the, if it is some sort of affection, it's, it's very, very subtle and it's still done in a, I guess a very Godzilla sort of way because I would expect Kong to behave differently. Mm -hmm. I like the music during those scenes too. It was really good. It's very energetic music. Mixed really well. I mean, Masaru Sato is great. He is a really, really great composer. Sato is, I believe, a more talented composer overall in that he was more internationally acceptable and knew what kind of stuff to produce at that time. Sato also did the music for Godzilla Raids Again and Son of Godzilla and Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, which I think the last one is the most memorable for me. But he uh, made a big contribution to to the Showa series. Yeah, which is why I think it's unfortunate that, for this movie especially, that you know, like, I have these two CDs that are the these best of Godzilla soundtracks that will have tracks of music from all of the movies. Uh, well, the the Showa one for Showa, and then there was one for the for the Heisei movies. If for the Showa CD, Godzilla versus the Sea Monster was completely skipped, and in the liner notes, the the people from the al- from the record company said that they skipped over this movie and gave the other ones higher priority because they thought the score for this was unimpressive. So you're telling me that there's a record company that doesn't recognize taste? <laughs> well, in their defense, they also left out the the uh, Save the Earth song from Smog Monster, which was very disappointing. Oh. Towards the end of the movie where there's uh we have the one track of music playing and then we have the other track of music playing. They all come to a stop all at once. And they stop bowing, you know, and, and doing the yes, stuff. and everything just sits there for like three to five seconds, and there's nothing. And I thought that was really cool. I don't think we ever see anything like that again. I actually thought that that whole scene was so, was just incredibly well oh, well handled. It's a good idea. Yeah for the for this whole movie, we see Mothra, but Mothra never does anything. She just sits there. Yeah, sleeping. All th- sleeping, all this praying and all of the singing and all of that like we've seen before. And then you have that, that pause, like you said, and then you see Mothra's eyes light up a little bit and the antennae start to move. And then, the, you know, the head bobs a little bit and she mm-hmm. makes her little cry. It, it, I felt like when I was watching that scene, it's almost like she's saying, I heard you. Yeah. Yeah, their, pray- like she, their prayers are finally answered. Yeah, it's like, I, it was like this little way of reassuring them. Yeah, and it's bringing the scene to like an exclamation point. Yeah, at the end there, and we start a different. We start yeah. the Mothra part of the movie. Yeah, which isn't very long, but no, we do get to see her at least. Yeah, there was the sequence when the the heroes are sneaking into the red bamboo facility the first time, and they're yeah they got the bush and they're hiding behind the bush. I know, which, which is like, it, I've it, seen it, that it, in so many cartoons, it, which is funny. yet another yet more evidence that this was based off of a cartoon. Mm-hmm. And it's funny to see it in live action, though. I know it is kind of weird because like does red do the guys not notice that there's a bush that's inching a little bit closer? I mean, I, yeah, we're going by cartoon logic a little, yeah, bit. a little bit there. Yeah, it's like don't never see us coming. Um, but I thought the the music when they're sneaking in, I wrote down in my notes. This sounds like Scooby Doo music. 
It's like the plum, plum, yeah, you know, as they're inching him. Just yet more evidence that this was inspired by a cartoon. (laughs) And yet it works. That's why I love the the fact that these all these movies in the Godzilla series up to now uh, are uh, (laughs) are not animations. Instead, we get to see live action. It, It adds so much reality to it. Speaking of that, I want you know to, to kind of uh, piggyback off of that a little bit. We had new actresses here for the Shobajin. They're a group called, oh, not a group. They're they're a duo called Pear Bambi. Uh huh. They're not awful, but I found myself really missing the peanuts. I think, just uh, perception wise, the, the peanuts are really really hard to beat. And so, but then it's like, oh, I didn't. I I think I, the first time I watched this, I was like, wait a minute. Oh yeah, that's right. The, but we still have to have the Shobajin, though, I think. And I think any at the same time, I think anybody that's going to take those those parts, they're going to try really hard. And I think they did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying that they did terribly. It's, it's just a it's just song. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a totally different song. Sato made it, I'm sure. Uh, and because it, it goes with all the other melodies that are present yeah. in, the, in the in the soundtrack. It's, it's part of the soundtrack. And I don't think it's good as good as or as classic sounding, you know, as, uh, as Mothra's song or, or, or some of the others that the peanuts did. Yeah. The other but, thing, yeah. the other thing that I thought was a little, I guess, kind of odd. I, I didn't really notice it until, until my most recent viewing, but their costuming for the, for the show, a little, seems a little weird to me. They had these floral pattern dresses that don't seem to really fit in with the rest of the Islanders. So my little, Fan theory is that it's probably something they brought back from one of their visits to Japan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they had it custom made. <laughs> yeah, probably. Because <laughs> they looked exactly the same. And they're just like, that looks way too processed to have just been yeah. people on an island. <laughs> well, at least there wasn't anything in the ending credits that said, you know, Shobajin's outfits by Dior. <laughs> or, or anything like, or Versace or anything like that. <laughs> But yeah, it looks kind of funny, actually. I like the classical costumes more, I think, the, pe- yeah. the ones the penis had. But it, it's just different. And I, I think maybe it goes more with the kind of the, that the hip attitude, yeah, young vibe, whatever you know? that we got going on in here that yeah. we've been discussing. To kind of backtrack on Mothra a little bit, is Mothra kind of lazy in this movie? I mean, she spends the whole thing sleeping. <laughs> She's just sitting around. <laughs> She's just sitting around and... I think in this movie, it's not really as much of a Mothra movie at all. I think it's like Mothra's just one of the many pieces of the puzzle that all comes together at the end. And she's just one of the later pieces to the puzzle, I would say. I mean, Godzilla, it takes a while for him to show up, let alone uh, wake up and actually start wandering around. Yeah, it's actually one of the things that I find myself really appreciating with uh, with the Showa-era movies. And with Sekizawa, I mean, he's... Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the continuity with these movies is loose, but Sekizawa is also keeping in mind what pieces he can use from other movies and, you know, and integrate them into this, which I think helps to broaden the, you know, broaden the appeal and really show that, the, you know, there is a larger world out there. Yeah, it's a continuation of the, the multiple kaiju franchise, so to speak, for sure. So, Brian, one of the, I think one of the distinctive things about this movie and it's brought up in some of the, you know, in some of the, you know, the literature that we've looked at for you know, for the podcast is that this is an incredibly suspenseful movie. I've even read one author who went so far as to call some of the moments and sequences in this movie Hitchcockian 
And I know if there's anyone I'm going to talk to to see if that's a legitimate claim or not, it would be you. The one instance that uh, this author brought up was the when they have the button for the for the self destruct for the self destruct, and they're trying to reach it and they can't get to it, and it keeps dropping. That's that's pretty Hitchcockian, I think. Yeah, going back and forth, camera wise from from them trying to push it, you know, and and reaching in. Mm-hmm. That's that. Yeah, that does work. Because they were, I believe they were increasing the, or decreasing the length of the cuts, you know, mm-hmm. going back and forth. And it's like, that creates suspense because you have that, the, that Russian constructivism kind of way of, of doing, of making it more suspenseful. I think mean, the most, the most cocky moments, definitely uh, the button. Yeah. That part's awesome. All Fukuda needed to do was, you know, have, give himself a random cameo, right? Yeah. <laughs> So this facility that the nuclear weapons are being made at and the, the red bamboo, they're, they're like a non-state actor from what I'm assuming here. They could be funded by some other uh, organization or by some other, or even like a rogue state. Yeah, that was something I was trying to figure out because who they are is actually left a little bit of a mystery, which I'm totally fine with. You know, it's a very Sekizawa sort of thing to do, you know, not necessarily explain everything, but... They, you definitely get impressions that they're much larger than just this one facility on this one island. Yeah, there's some sort of covert um, specter or whatever. Yeah, yeah when I was watching... little the, installations everywhere. Yeah, I, uh, I, I would definitely say that you know, specter from the James Bond movies is probably the most immediate inspiration for them. But I was also, while watching it, having some uh, flashbacks to, to Cobra from gi joe now obviously that came later but it's still very much the same sort of thing you know this international terrorist organization with aspirations of world domination i also thought that yeah i love the name for their island i mean i think the official name because the island gets referred to by two different names the official name is lecce island but everyone calls it devil's island (laughs) that is a very james bondian comic booky thing to do and there is a devil's island well, if they remade this movie now, only instead they'd probably call it like, you know, they'd have Godzilla visit like Fiery Cross Reef instead, you know, installation yeah. built on a fake, you know, artificial island, yeah. runway, ships, and you got your whole, whole army that he could fight. Although we know that would never get made. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And also the fact that they, you know, they decide to build this facility and just in case they install the self-destruct. I mean, it just seems like a smart move to do if you yeah, are a nice super villain. sci-fi trope. You always yeah. have to have the self-destruct button to blow up the entire island. Uh, that was impressive. Sky high. Yeah, no more that island. Was, yeah, that, that was... That relates back to the nuclear tests making islands disappear. Yeah. I think uh, it, it, now would be a good time for us to actually you know, talk a little bit about the, the monsters that we have in this. So our new monster in this is Ebira, the, you know, the giant lobster. I know he gets a little bit of a bad rap because he's not a very flashy monster, but I actually found myself being impressed with his design this time around. You know, it's a very well-constructed suit. looks great. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the asymmetrical design for, for Ebira, where he has the, the one really big claw that he can uh-huh. use to clamp onto things. He can grab things. He can grab Godzilla. And then he has the... The, the much smaller claw on the other side that he can use for stabbing and skewering. Mm-hmm. I, I, I thought it was I thought it was effective. Maybe he's not that much of a threat to Godzilla. 
because you know he fights him twice and loses both times. He's like but... the local bully that you have to <laughs> yeah. bribe with a cookie in order to get down the street or something. Yeah, and it was his fights with Godzilla are are always entertaining. You know, I've I've been noticing with the viewing these movies for the podcast that it seems like a favorite tactic of Showa era monsters is rock throwing. And it's really good in this one. Yeah. In this one, you know, Godzilla's the one who does it initially, but Eburag catches it. And then he's like, oh, look what I got. And, and then, then he's he throws like, it back. He's, and then he's like pitching it. And then Eburag yeah. hits it. Like yeah. Baseball and then, or something. Yeah, and then Godzilla not, you, hits it with his head and sends it back. I mean, it's just. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's incredibly fun. <laughs> yeah. This movie is constantly reminding us, oh, yeah, don't take me too seriously here. Yeah. yeah, and that's not a bad thing at all. I like it. And it's not even just Ebira's sequences with Godzilla that are effective. The scene early on when he attacks the Yalin, that was really well done, except in that point, all, all you see is a claw. I mean, mm-hmm. there's some genuine terror at that point. And some it, mystery, because... Mystery, yeah, there's mystery coming. and there's terror. I mean, you've got the storm going and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was very effective, in terms of mood, in terms of the effects, you never would you wouldn't expect a giant lobster to have that sort of an effect. I mm-hmm. think so. I, that's why I think Ebira is it's a he's an underrated kaiju. I think, and they're doing something different. What's interesting though is that scene I just talked about where he's attacking the yacht. When I watched this movie on VHS growing up, there was a different. It was a different cut of the movie, and in that one they the editors had extracted that scene and put it at the beginning of the movie, leading you to believe that you were watching Ryota's brother get shipwrecked. Hmm. It was really weird. So when I watched the subtitled version of this the first time, because I noticed as a kid, it's like, wait, that has the same name as the yacht later. <laughs> and then when I watched the subtitled version, I was like, oh, they moved that. What? <laughs> They're probably trying to shoe in more commercial or something when this was released on TV who knows yeah who knows Some but it was right at, version of the cut yeah. yeah but it was right at the beginning of the movie mm. you know they had picked that up and put it over there it was it was odd mm-hmm. um, we've we've talked a little bit about Mothra already but you know Mothra looks about how you would expect her to so and she's not in the movie very much but she looks wonderful yeah she looks absolutely wonderful it was great seeing the adult Mothra again because we hadn't seen her since Mothra versus Godzilla. Yeah, and the eyes are different specifically. Yeah, the the eyes are, are are different. And this is actually the last time we're going to see the adult Mothra in the Showa series. Oh yeah, yeah, because she makes one more appearance, but it's as the the caterpillar again. Mm-hmm. Something that dawned on me more recently, thinking about how this was originally a Kong movie, we missed out on a chance for King Kong to meet Mothra. If at all briefly, it would have happened. Yeah. That is such, that's such an exciting idea right there. King Kong meeting Mothra. It's something that, that was probably the only time that could have happened. It'll never, that you'll probably never have a chance to have that happen again. Yeah, unless they start making more movies again that have have all of these characters going across. But uh, maybe we'll be lucky. You hear that, Legendary? Make this happen. And now uh, we move on to, you know, to Godzilla himself. I know that the the suit that's used in this movie does get a little bit of a bad rap, and I can understand why. It does look kind of weird, 
but there are some technical aspects of the suit that I think work really well. I love the scene when he wakes up after that lightning strike oh, and you just see and the around. eye opens yeah. up. Yeah. It's like that sudden eye movement and it's just like, mm-hmm. whoa. Yeah. That is, it's, it's jarring, but in a really, but in the right sort of way, mm-hmm. you know, I think anyone who watches it, if they're honest, that is genuinely a little bit scary seeing that. But the thing about Godzilla in this movie, as we mentioned, this was originally supposed to be a Kong movie. So they kept most of the characterization that I think was originally intended for Kong in this because Godzilla is less of a hero in this compared to Invasion of Astro Monster. Mm-hmm. He's gone back a little bit more to the, you know, to the force of nature sort of a thing. He's not thinking about watching out for, you know, for the humans or anything. He's just doing his own thing. The fact that he's tearing up a base and attacking Red Bamboo is because they came after him first. He's not fighting Ebira because he's trying to be a hero. He's just wandering around this island and there's something... And he gets attacked by everything. Yeah, that he gets attacked by well, yeah, everything. It's, it's our sort of wandering Godzilla, like that version of Godzilla. Yeah. He, he, in the storm, we guess, you know, he ended up uh, marooned on the island there by the yeah. storm. So then he, once he wakes up, he just starts wandering around and isn't angrily destroying stuff. But at the same time, he isn't running around in his hero hero uh, persona. Yeah. My th- my little fan theory about this is that you know since this since there's nothing here that tells us that this takes place in the future or anything like with Invasion of Astro Monster, no. I'm assuming that this is probably not too long after Ghidorah the Three Headed Monster, so perhaps Godzilla hasn't quite you know the 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 heroic side of Godzilla hasn't quite taken a hold yet. He's still getting there you know he does one heroic thing fighting Ghidorah but yes it's not like the not conversion isn't hero. yeah it's the yeah. conversion isn't quite complete yet but it's interesting because yeah you know, the the heroes when they talk about Godzilla they don't necessarily like or trust him they still kind of think of him as it's the same thing with invasion of Astro Monster they're still kind of looking at Godzilla as being a bit of a destructive force something That's, they can use to fight the other stuff yeah something they can use to fight the other stuff but still much again like the pre like the previous film you have this scene where the heroes are leaving and you are meant to pity Godzilla because he's being left behind except in this case the island's going to explode and it'll most likely kill him mm-hmm. so they actually decide the humans actually try to warn him and say get off the island because it's going to blow up yeah. so it's it's one of those things that's why I like to th- I, I look at Godzilla and this as kind of an anti-hero. It's the kind of characterization that actually we, we're going to get a lot more in the you know in the more modern films. Godzilla is a force of nature, but he's still doing things that are to the benefit of Earth. Another part was where he Godzilla sort of itches his nose a little bit. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, and this is I think the only time. Well, not the only time, but it's interesting to see what what Godzilla does when he sleeps. Later in the movie, he kind of yeah he like sits down, takes a nap. Yeah, it takes a nap. He mm-hmm. just sits down, just kind of you know leans his head against you know a, 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 at the side of a mountain, and then and then one last telltale sign that you know things are a little bit different in this, and that this originally wasn't meant for Godzilla is Godzilla gets revived with electricity. Yeah, that never comes back in any time. In no, the series with I mean, it, it, in co- I suppose in context it makes sense because jolting something awake with 
electricity is a quick and easy way to to do it. Yeah, you're literally jump starting the story. Yeah, <laughs> but so it serve it works. It's just it's something you would expect more in you know with a Kong story. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that wraps up part two of the podcast. Uh, let's move on to part three. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we discuss an issue that either was brought up directly by the film or was going on in Japan at the time the film was released. And this time we wanted to sort of mention the the population and societal changes in Japan and their effect on movie audiences, particularly in this case, obviously, for the kaiju films. We have at least eight long-term trends going on that, that acted as headwinds towards the Godzilla film series. Obviously, in this environment, when you want to keep Godzilla alive in the Japanese popular culture, the choice is clear. You want to try to sketch the Gojira series to include other genres, other age groups, have some campy humor to entertain people with, or have a kid's film, have a young people film, have a classic one to keep the series alive. The alternative is just to let the whole series die, and that wasn't an option. Regarding Son of Kong, like we've said before, Ruth Rose said, if you can't make it bigger, make it funnier. And that's exactly what the creators of the Godzilla series did. They created Son of Godzilla and All Monsters Attack and so many other films for kids. And then they they did Godzilla vs. Heteron and mixed things up. The purpose was to expand the genre and include many big areas as possible to keep the series alive. Now, there's, there's a thing where I think people cite the budget reasons as motivated by a different thing. And that is like the idea that executives were sitting around at the boardroom table and they were like, Oh, we have the greatest idea in the world. We're going to reduce the budgets of these things. And then we're going to make even more money out of it. Well, as far as I can tell, that never happened. No, it was so if it's a bad, it's a pretty bad idea. So I don't think that they would have done it, done that, that way purposely, but instead there, there's a lot of pressure on the series, on the studios. And so this is just, we're going in, especially after I was starting with Astro monster down. Um, it, it, we have a changing characteristic and then this is where we get more of that. And then it got silly complaints about the series. Like, Oh, then it just got silly. It's like, well, there's a difference. This and that movie weren't necessarily made for you. And yeah, there's, it's a there's a multitude of reasons for why the series particularly after this point progressed the, the way it did it wasn't like you said it wasn't because they were thinking give it less money so we can make more off of it it just that's yeah, not how sitting, it works. like yeah as if these people are sitting at the boardroom like we're gonna we're gonna make so much money out of this idea we're gonna spend less and, and, and make no, more. Yeah, I make somehow make more. You know, it's like that that equation where it's like pl- blank plus blank equals profit. Yeah, yeah. It's just there was just so many things uh, going on, and like I said, there, there's eight of them really that we can talk about. Yeah, and in no particular order, we're, we're going to just start going through these. Well, number one is the movement of the Japanese people from the cities to the suburbs which that caused theater attendance to go down and it caused eventually it started causing theaters to be closed. 
Yeah, and this wasn't just affecting Godzilla, it was affecting everybody. Yeah, and because, uh, as this, in case you didn't know, the studios own the theaters in Japan. They still do. But it's mainly between two theater groups that the competition is right now. But this is like a this is an industrialized society change, really, when when you take it down to it. And this is also related to I mean, this happened in America. This happened in Europe. A lot of people moving away from the cities and into the suburbs. And so the theaters weren't as easy to get to. And that's just a that's just a, tr- a long term trend that there really is no easy answer to for how to alleviate unless you want to just start building movie theaters in areas like that which yeah i can actually testify to that because there's a small city not far from from fort wayne indiana that you know never had its own movie theater so if anyone wanted to go see a movie they had to travel to one of two other nearby cities so there was a local businessman who invested the money and built a theater in his in this little city and it's been there for you know for i think for over 10 years now and it's been you know a great boon for uh, for that city and for him you know he's made tremendous amount of money so that's one way you can solve it but that took years to do yeah that's not going to happen overnight and plus when you already have people still moving that's even harder to do yeah um so you, you sort of see why there was a you, they were probably having to play catch up in that department for a while with uh, where they have movie theaters, but a lot of them ended up being closed. Pretty big percentage of them. Number two is there were a lot of demographics changes going on. The younger viewers were the ones that showed up more reliably to see movies. And so you're going to start making movies for that younger audience. And then also, if it's kids their parents buy tickets in order to get in themselves. And so then you get more money out of that. But with the demographics changing, that's why we get these, these younger movies. And that's one reason why we're doing this topic for this one is because this is definitely uh, catered towards a certain demographic. Yeah. It's more or less the pivot point, you know, in the, in the series, you know, when the shift was becoming much more obvious. Yeah. And like, if you were born, right after the war in say 1946. So if at 1966, you'd be about 20. And so that, that really fits right in and it would probably be, you know, the few years after the war. So it'd be what you'd be like 16 to 20 years old, perfect demographic to concentrate on the new, the new class of moviegoers. Yeah. And this isn't something that's unique to Japan at this time. It's happening in the United States, yeah, baby it's boom. been happening Post-war. like that for, you know, mm-hmm. for a long time. You know, that's why a lot of, you know, a lot of modern blockbusters seem to be written to cater to that teenage demographic because they're the ones most likely to be going off and seeing these movies. Including even now, well, now it's even younger people in other countries that are the target demographics. So yeah, this is, this is definitely nothing uh, new particularly. So, number three, uh, starting in 1970, the contract system ended and the Japanese film industry went through a, uh, a bit of a collapse. The thing with the contract system was, was that this was something that was going on in the United States with studios like back during the war, where you would sign like a, 
multi multi year or multi movie contract. And then you'd be part of the stable of actors for that studio. Now, if you've seen all of these movies we've seen so far, you can understand that that's exactly what they were doing. That's why we have uh, Akihiko Hirata and why we have so many other stars that keep coming back. Takarata. Mm-hmm, for a lot of these movies. But then that system finally ended in 1970. That stable of actors disappeared for all the studios. And then it made the entire movie industry very, very different. And it underwent a collapse. Uh, actually, uh, the same year, uh, Ikura Kurosawa uh, actually tried to kill himself. But so 1970 was a bit of a tough year for a lot of people. But uh, it was also the year that Eiji Tsuburaya died. Mm-hmm. Right. So particularly after 1970, the movie system changes even more. And of course, the Godzilla movies, the show series went up to 1975. And so you, you have to see that process going on in the in these movies as well, which you can notice. Although we do have some faces returning, it is a, a different bit of dynamic with with how the actors are uh, in these movies but yeah most of the actors in the 70s films are completely different than what we see in the 60s mm-hmm. because the i can't believe they went that long with the contract system though i mean the, the united states got rid of that quite a bit earlier yeah, i know number four is a really big one and that is the advent of television yeah this is the one that people will point to the most in the fandom for why they think the Godzilla series went downhill. Yeah. So before television, the only place that you could experience a movie was in a movie theater, which that nowadays is so hard to imagine with on demand, everything at, at our fingertips. But once you take that connection away and you give everybody a television and everybody buys it through the mass market, then things really change because they can watch whatever they want on the television that's available. And so then they start going to movie theaters less because it's not necessary. They end up being able to see movies on television. But this was 1966, which saw the premiere of the incredibly popular Ultraman, also by A.G. Subaraya. And with that, kids were able to get a new kaiju every week instead of just catching a movie once or twice a year, you know, so they could get their kaiju fixes a lot more often. So you had that factoring in as well. And Sekizawa even made his own television show that ended up being a small sort of serial. Yeah, Aegon. Yeah, right. And so what this did was it, it negated the necessity of movie theaters for a lot of people because they could, within the comfort of their own home, see all kinds of stuff now instead of having to dress up and then take the transportation, whatever you took in order to get to the movie theater and back and all that. Instead, you just get to sit at home. Number five, we have the Godzilla series and just, I guess the life cycle of a series where, I mean, there was a Godzilla film released almost every single year for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, in 1964, there were two. Yeah. And like with a series in general of movies, you don't want to, I mean, every, every one of them has its own life cycle. And, and that's kind of why you end up with so many different Godzilla movies being made at, at this point in time, because you can't keep remaking Astro Monster. 
every year. You know, you have to do something different in order to keep it going. But I, I'm surprised they were even able to go this long with making a new Godzilla movie every single year almost and being able to keep that momentum. That's tough. Very and, tough. And I, I don't know very many movie series out there that would like, I guess James Bond even, would be the closest one really. Yeah. At least to most Western viewers. Mm. I mean, I mean, there are some other film franchises that were popular in Japan, but yeah, they aren't nearly as well known over here. And the most tickets that were sold in the Godzilla series to this day was for King Kong versus Godzilla, which was 1962, four years before the movie we're on now. And declining ticket sales are, are just a, a fact of life at, at this point. And I think the studio had to have been noticing this trend already. I think it's amazing that there were, they even kept up this much. But like, I think we've read somewhere that there was the Godzilla movie was one of the last things they would think about. And they would say, Oh, the, Oh yeah, let's, let's do a Godzilla movie. Yeah. Cause we don't have anything else to do. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I mean, then, heck like, that's what, the, that's what happened. was having a problem where they were like, where he was like, I don't, I, I have already created all the monsters. There aren't any more yeah. monsters. Yeah. By the time you got, you get to the seventies and they're asking him to, to write more scripts for Godzilla movies is like, there are no more monsters left. Yeah. They've, they've done a whole, whole lot with the different kinds of monsters you can make. And, and yeah. so th there gets to be a, not played out, but just a loss of momentum. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. I mean, it, it, with this one, I mean, you're talking about, Oh yeah, we need a Godzilla movie. I mean, that's more or less what happened with this. They're like, Oh, Sekizawa, you got this script. Oh, it's King Kong. I'll just make it Godzilla. Yeah. Our sixth reason for why, uh, the attendance went down is foreign films, especially from America really ate up ticket sales. In 1975, foreign films outperformed Japanese films in Japanese theaters. And that trend went for a long time after that, uh, because there's so many just blockbuster things that happen to come out of American movie studios because there's just so much money to make it with. I mean, now that is just a foregone conclusion. You, you have like movies that are made for $250 million and stuff. And then they make back twice that much, you know, it's just it's insane. massive, absolutely massive. And, and so it's hard to compete with, with a juggernaut, like what American movie studios were becoming starting in the, especially starting in the seventies and going into the, what I call the big eighties with so many big eighties movies that were being made at the time. But yeah, plus a, it's a big drag on, on the, the movies that you have in your own country. Amazing. Yeah, plus the the Japanese love American pop culture. That was it was a big draw as well. Yeah, and the po yeah, the popularity was compounding on itself by even this time, for sure. Yeah, it's kind of funny how both the United States and Japan each of them you know, their pop cultures were becoming increasingly more popular in their you know, in the other country. Mhm. Mm so number seven is a big one. It's other Japanese studios and the competition that they contribute. Yeah, because at this point, it wasn't just Toho making kaiju movies. It was everybody. In 1967, actually, that was dubbed the year of the kaiju film because every Japanese studio released a kaiju film that year. But it's interesting because with the Godzilla series, we peaked in ticket sales in 1962 and then the kaiju film 
as a phenomenon peaks around 1967, but they still made a film all the way through almost every year, all the way through 1975, which that's really creating a lot of stuff against the odds here and, and against the momentum. Yeah, it's really a testament to the to the longevity and the the staying power that Godzilla had because he outlasted pretty much every other kaiju, at least the ones that were tr- they were trying to make franchises out of. I mean, you had uh, the Gamera series going on at about this time, which was very much for children. In fact, one of Gamera's monikers was friend to all children. Can't, can't get more uh, targeted with the demographic there. Uh, there, there are a lot of kids in the films too. Yeah. That's what a lot of uh, what the Gamera series did too. Yeah. King Kong versus Godzilla was, wasn't just the big fish in the pond. It was the only fish in the pond. And then when you get to the mid to late sixties, Maybe Toho was the big fish, but there were a lot of other fishes in that pond by that point. So it was dividing everyone's attention and money. And at the same time, because of that competition, you don't want to have that competition go unanswered. So instead you have Toho saying, oh yeah, we're going to make a better kids film than that. And we're going to outdo you in this department and that department that you think you can outdo us with at the other studio, but guess what? You're wrong. And so the studio had to respond to the other movies that the studio were making too, or the other studios were making as well. Yeah. It's just the nature of competition. Yeah. So it's like Toho's getting dragged from one forum to the next and having to fend off competition, which is hard to do, especially if there's that many studios that were doing it. Yeah, and keep in mind, they're not only competing with other movie studios, they're also competing with television, as we've already mentioned. That was another thing that contributed to that year of the kaiju in 1967. It wasn't just movie theaters, it was television. They they were everywhere. It's kind of like how superheroes are now. They're just all over the place, you can't get away from them. And that leads us to number eight, which is overall uh, lowering of budgets. And that's really caused by a lot of this stuff. And then it also becomes like a reinforcing system as well, because the less you make, the less you have to make another movie. Yeah, it, it, the, low, uh, the lowered budgets is really working in tandem with everything else that we've been talking about here, because it's less of a cause of the, you know, of the Godzilla series going downhill as it is. A symptom symptom, of the larger problem, Uh you know, it's a, it's a result of all of this other stuff. You know, it wasn't just because, you know, they were all sitting around saying, we're going to make more money by spending less. Yeah. So between all of these things, you have movement of Japanese, the suburbs, less ticket sales. So that's less money. And then changing demographics possibly less money there because you're losing your older audience and at the same time trying to get enough new audience to come in to keep it alive. And then the contract system ending and money and the studio system having less money as a result of that and collapsing and all. Then the advent of television, that's less ticket sales there. And so, so many of this, so many of these things contribute to lower budgets overall because the studio is making less. Which then required those who were making these movies to do the you know the best they can with what they have. That's why you start seeing them use stock footage more, and they have to change the setting 
to accommodate for the money that they have. And you know, it becomes a lot of things. Yeah, and it's the matter of prioritizing. You know, there's still there's still money here. It's not like they're being just totally murdered in the budget department, but they they genuinely do have significantly less than they did in the good old days. I mean, like in 1962, early 60s, that was what I consider the, the really the peak of the Toho movie monster movies. I mean, it's just amazing how much they did. And those were prestige pictures, but the prestige pictures kind of get a little bit rough around the edges, even though this is Japan's and, and Toho's flagship series. It's still that, but at the same time, there there's less to work with. And I don't, I think once you look at all of these reasons that are for, for this, it's, it's harder to just say, oh, well, then they got cheap or then it got silly or whatever. Well, they had to go for a newer audience because time's not standing still during all of this. There are massive societal changes occurring. And so I think once you realize that there was this huge amount of, of headwinds that were having to be encountered, I think it makes you appreciate the fact that, oh yeah, even though they didn't have as much to work with, it's amazing what they did do with what they had. Yeah, it really is, especially compared to a lot of their competition. I mean, there are there were a lot of kaiju films being produced here, but most of them end up being eclipsed by Godzilla, even during this era. Yeah, and it's just, it's just because the output wasn't as good, and 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 also it's just that Godzilla, you know, the, Godzilla is the kaiju still. But the product that these other studios were turning out still just wasn't as good, is the bottom line, really. Yeah. You, you uh, ended up seeing a lot more of their competition ending up on MST3K than you ever saw with Godzilla. And there were less ticket sales, but at the same time, this isn't because people were getting poorer either. There isn't that reason, really. Uh, in 1966, the economic growth for that year was 10.63%, which is giant. Well, I think that wraps up part three. I hope we gave everybody a little bit more uh, information on just how these movies were changing and how maybe they shouldn't get so hard of a time. <laughs> I would definitely agree with you on there. But speaking of Year of the Kaiju, our next movie will be 1967's Son of Godzilla, which is well remembered for some of the wrong reasons, I will admit. <laughs> we'll get into that in our next episode. We'd like to send a shout-out to our patrons, Kiyoe Toshi and Sean Stiff, for pledging at the Kaiju Visionary level. Thank you for your support. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara! Sayonara!